Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, Your Summer Stories. Welcome to the fourth podcast in the Your Summer Stories series for Newcastle Libraries Real. Today, Karen Eastwood introduces us to an exciting voice in the Australian crime writing scene, Sarah Bailey, who will tell us all about her latest book, The Housemate. Hello, my name's Karen Eastwood, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with crime novelist Sarah Bailey. In 2017, her first novel, Dark Lake, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut and the Sisters in Crime Davit Award for Best First Novel. Into the Night followed in 2018 and the last of the Gemma Woodstock series, Where the Dead Go, was published in 2019. That's a lot of success in a short period of time. you think she'd have run out of steam by now, but no. Sarah Bailey has gifted readers a whole new world of excitement with The Housemate, a standalone novel featuring a dynamic new protagonist, Olive Groves. Sarah, thanks for zooming in to join us from Melbourne. Oh, thank you very much for letting me zoom in to join you. <laughs> Great. So, The Housemate. Um, to me, it really takes your writing to another level. I have to tell you, as I was reading through the crescendo to the climax, I was exhausted by the adrenaline rush. And then I had this flashback to my Melbourne teenage years of riding the Mad Max, Mad Mouth roller coaster um, at the Melbourne show and that sort of whiplash effect as the unexpected twists and turns came through fast and furious. It's really great stuff. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. It's so strange when you birth a book into the world because I think you really don't know if it is any good or not. And, um, you know, there's there's not really that many checkpoints along the way either. So I was really relieved that my agent and my publisher liked the book. But apart from that, <laughs> you know, I wasn't really sure. And, you know, there is a bit of a gap too between when you finish it and when it goes kind of live yeah um so yeah huge relief that um people seem to to like it and um yeah I, I mean I don't sort of have a strong point of view like all of my books are sort of just things that that um I wrote but um yeah I'm really um I'm really glad I gave a standalone novel a shot so that yeah. that was definitely satisfying oh, well there's so much I want to talk to you about this book and your writing and look I'm fortunate enough that we do have a live event booked in February so you know um, my plan is to save sort of the deep exploration of the book until then especially to avoid spoilers for anyone listening in so there you go Nova Castrians you need to read the book by February to avoid those spoilers but let's start on how you made the transition from detective protagonist Gemma Woodstock to journalist Olive Groves so how did she come about? Yeah she came about I think because I wanted to explore crime writing from a slightly different angle there's lots of similarities between detectives and journalists and mm. I think they, they did you know they share a common goal which is to find out what happened um, but I think that the journalist responsibility then extends into 
how you present that story for public perception. And it's, I think it's a big responsibility actually. Mm. Mm. The more I think about it, you know, the more that you can really set up to, I guess, change the course of someone's life. And that person is not necessarily the person at the centre of the crime that you're writing about. So, yeah, I think that there's, um, there's deadlines and there's, you know, the actual kind of context of your job and your job description. And then there's this sort of blurrier, um, more interesting, I guess, from a fiction perspective, um, responsibility you have about how you report the truth, um, what information you include, what you're sort of implying um, in the way you craft a story. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting extra layer um, to bring into a crime um, environment from a novel perspective. So I think, yeah, I was keen to give that a shot. Mm. Yeah, no, it all works. It all comes together really well. And there's so, as you say, there's so many layers that go with that. I was, um, I don't know if you've been listening to the Bad Online Festival um, that uh, is being run at this month, um, but I was listening to Paula Hawkins' interview and she says she starts with the who done it and why. What's your method? I think mine is probably more um, what if. So I tend to start with a sort of a premise question, I, I guess, which is sort of what if um, a journalist that worked on a story 10 years ago is assigned to the the cold case version of that story? Um, and what if she's now engaged to the husband of the detective that originally investigated the case? So it's sort of like a, it's more of a um, what if proposition and I guess what the answer to that question then becomes is sort of the story. Mm. Um, that's sort of how I've approached all of my books. It's sort of yeah, that, that kind of question um, mm. and then it sort of builds from there because I guess then you start to go, well, that would then mean that she's walking in the footsteps of a, of a ghost that she's technically potentially quite jealous of or, um, you know, she's obviously going to be thrust into her past in an unexpected way. So it kind of starts to create the, the key um, plot points in the beats of the story for me. Mm. Um, so that, that's kind of how it's worked so far, I think. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That I love that idea of raising the question and then the possibilities. It sounds quite a playful way of writing. Yeah, I think it is quite playful and I think it's sort of quite conceptual but because I don't, I'm not a very good plotter, I think that they're the kind of questions that if I can ask them those questions to myself, I can then play around with that in my head and really build out a bit of a plan um, without having to write anything down. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's quite helpful if your brain latches on to sort of certain nuggets of um, information or little sort of ideas, I think that they tend to be the things that are, are clearly quite strong from a plot mm. point of view. Mm. So, yeah, I think those questions, I think, help me form and kind of start to filter through like what seems like it might work and be strong enough to actually build a story around versus what maybe just isn't quite catching properly. Yeah, yeah, and then go with those. Mm. Because I, I remember listening to um, another podcast that you were being interviewed in and and you said all these new people, you know, talking about a whole new cast of of um, characters and you said all these new people have to be figured out. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder what a process is with that. But again, it's that asking those questions and letting them reveal themselves as you're writing. Yeah, I think it is actually very similar because as the story shape starts to take hold I guess you just keep adding it sort of like well what if Ollie was paired with so Ollie's the main character in the housemate what if Ollie was paired with a more 
sort of millennial um, journalist that she has to sort of then work out how to work alongside, um, even though she finds him irritating. And yeah. it, I guess that, then, yeah, that, that sort of subplot starts to be, be built by those questions as well. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely way it plays out organic process rather than as you say plotting everything out and being then stuck to this sort of um, rigid framework to work within yeah well I also I mean I, I really admire people that plot sort of so um, meticulously like I think it's an incredible skill and I wish I was better at it but for me I don't think it will work because I do tend to come up with so many ideas as I'm going. So I think it just part of, I think for me, writing is what is the best stimulant for like other writing and other ideas. And so I kind of have to get started, I think. And then something about the process of getting started actually makes it all come together for me. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, I think I'm just stuck with that being the way that I will write, which is a bit messy and probably not as um, secure in, in its feeling or approach, but I guess... It's working for you, though. <laughs> it's definitely working for you. I want to come back to your, your writing process, but seeing that you've already brought up Ollie and Cooper, I'd like to explore their relationship a little bit. The dynamic between Ollie and this the enthusiastic, geeky millennial Cooper. It's it is great fun, especially in as they're getting to know each other and their dialogue. It's it's this great sparring, I, and I love that line. Ollie says he's like a puppy; you have to yank back onto the path every couple of steps. And I thought, oh god, that captures him so well. And they are an unlikely pairing. They grate against each other, and there's this quiet one-upmanship. And she's so intolerant of him and dismissive, but he's got this tenacity. And I get a sense that you really enjoyed writing those scenes and developing their relationship. So it really does evolve. Yeah, I think it's it's really nice when you find characters that sort of riff off each other. And, I mean, I get into a place where I guess I'm I'm thinking faster than I can write it all down. And I think that's when you know that you've kind of just got characters that for whatever reason have got the right alchemy mm. when they are interacting with each other. Um, and I think they had, you know, Ollie and Cooper have like a good, um, they've got a common goal, which I think always helps because you sort of, if you've got a common goal as a pair of characters, you have to continue to work out how you're going to try to get there. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that the path is easy. So it, it's good to have some tension because that always makes for better dialogue. I really like writing dialogue. It's probably my my favourite part of um, drafting, I think. Um, and, yeah, and they've got the generational gap. Um, thing going on junior senior kind of complexity he's really popular with some of the big dogs at work though so she's sort of frustrated about what she sees as a bit of a free kick so you've kind of just got a good old-fashioned competitive vibe between them Um, but you know he really respects her and her experience Mm. and then you know she obviously comes to kind of respect him and his yeah as you've said tenacity so they're on a bit of a journey and I think that's always um fun to play with and to hopefully fun to read as well yeah oh definitely (laughs) your summer stories are available anytime anywhere just download the newcastle libraries app and access your summer stories plus thousands just like them today it's also interesting the way their relationship personifies that whole um, changing nature of the way news is presented, so the digital versus the traditional newsprint. So 
referring to the book uh, on page 50, Cooper says, we need to diversify, you know, evolve or die. Ollie makes a dismissive sound, masking the betrayal she feels. What we really need to do is invest in quality journalism, to which Cooper says, podcasting is quality journalism. So, yeah, I want to explore that that theme that you bring up, digital media and, and its role in the more traditional news world and the changing nature of how news is disseminated can you just share with us a bit about, you know, that idea and how that came up? Yeah, I mean, I could do a whole podcast on this topic. <laughs> I think it's so interesting. But, yeah, it's a real wrestle, I think, with um, media particularly. But I think a lot of um, industries suffer this kind of conundrum at the moment. And, you know, it is it is a lot to do with digital technology and the platforms on which things are delivered. But what it's really, I think, um, upended is the question around, well, how much does experience matter anymore in a world where if you're good on the tools, you can actually be really valuable to an organisation? That's now got a huge capacity. And, you know, you could be one year into being sort of a journalist, but actually someone that is incredibly valuable to the organisation for a raft of reasons. Um, I mean, I think personally that, you know, experience has a a huge role to play and and would never, should never be... Um, discounted in in place of energy and capability, but they kind of need to coexist now. So um, I think, look, you know, everyone has to kind of catch up to what the audience needs and wants and news is no different. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess from a principal's point of view, Ollie really struggles with, yes, we want to get people what they want, but what do they sort of need and what's actually right for the story and if they're not leading the charge on that as journalists, then who is, you know? So kind of she's really struggling with having worked pretty hard and come to the uh, career a little bit late herself. She feels like she's always been playing catch up. And I guess it feels like just when she's gotten to the peak, it's all starting to fall apart underneath her. So she's got a personal kind of frustration, but yeah. I definitely think um, from talking to journalists, it's a, it is a real question and it is something that the industry continues to grapple with you know people are consuming content in different ways the ownership of content is really blurry like mm. who actually owns different content is confusing um, and how the media landscape kind of responds to audience need but also commercial pressure and then also kind of what they think is the right thing to do um, I mean I think it you know I think journalists are really it's a really honorable profession or it can be, but um, it can also be, um, you know, from a Donald Trump perspective, you know, it can be really questioned these days. And that's oh, sort yeah. of created a whole lot of challenges for journalists and um, who is even a journalist, I think, is a, a fair question. So, yeah, lots of kind of topics in, in that whole um, world. But I guess I was really trying to home in on the difference between up-and-coming channels Mm-hmm. Um, and how they sort of play a role in the landscape and how to sort of more sort of old school traditional media principles apply to these new formats and platforms. Yeah. So, yeah, and then I think just also the the sort of like old hat versus the new excited young pup is, you know, it's an interesting, um, interesting dynamic as well. Yeah. And then also providing that opportunity for compromise and the marriage of the two, seeing a possibility for that and and how that plays out in the book. That's really well done. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I work in in an advertising industry, so it's a similar 
wrestle, perhaps not quite so black and white, <laughs> um, pardon the pun, but I think, yeah, I think there's definitely now, you know, um, speed is, is sort of a currency in, in and of itself. So people want things fast and maybe they want things fast more than they want things perfect. But, you know, as a journalist, accuracy is pretty important. So you don't want to be compromising facts for speed. So, yeah, there's just a whole lot of things to sort of think about. And, um, uh, yeah, I enjoyed, I think, exploring that in, in this book as a bit of an undercurrent to the whole proceeding. Yes. And, yeah, the, the question of truth and how it comes out and mm, how it's delivered and who wants to hear what. As you say, it's worthy of a complete podcast of its own. Series even. <laughs> there's a thought. Getting back to what you were saying about your writing and um, another thing I heard you say was, I find writing hard. It doesn't come easy to me. You strike me as a very disciplined writer because you you fit in so many other things in your life, as we all do, but how does writing fit into your life? I mean, how do you you work it all and and what's your process? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if discipline is the right word. Like once I commit to something, I'm pretty determined about finishing it so Mm -hmm. I think I'm not a good quitter (laughs) generally speaking so I guess that's probably more the discipline part manifests in that way but I mean I you know know of writers that write every day and are absolutely sort of committed to their craft and and you know write for hours and whatever and I I just I can't do that because of the way um, my current kind of life works but um, I don't think that's that's not me. Like I'm not a, a sort of an everyday um, writer person. Um, I spend an awful lot of time thinking about my ideas and, and really not writing anything down, but just really nutting them out in my head. Um, and then I think I get to a point where I can then download them relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't feel quick for me when I'm doing it, but I mean, I look back and I'm like, yeah, okay, that didn't take you know, ages and ages to to draft out. It might have been sort of four or five months um, or or whatever. But, yeah, it's a bit of a messier, more ad hoc peaks and troughs process, I think, for me. And I think maybe it is because I work full time and maybe it would be different if I didn't work full time. But I kind of plan out my year or, you know, sort of the, the time frame that I'm talking about and then work when I think the writing will fit into that around other things. And I have to be flexible because it depends on what's going on with work and everything else. But broadly speaking, I kind of have target dates, I guess, in terms of when I need to get certain things done. And then I, I kind of work backwards and make that time allocation work. But it does depend a bit on what phase of the process I'm in. And, you know, last year with the housemate, um, I was in lockdown for a lot of it. And that was helpful from a drafting point of view because I could work, kind of have dinner, get everyone sorted and then spend a few hours most nights writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I also get quite relentless because it felt like I was just always in front of a computer. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm a a big sort of um, SWAT, like SWATter, like, you know, those kids that study for uni. I don't do – it's not that I do that the night before, but I do do intense bursts of writing and get – a really significant bulk of the effort done in big batches mm-hmm. um, and, then I, and then I sort of slowly edit in a more measured, ordered, you know, an hour or so a day kind of way. So, 
Yeah, I should probably keep a diary or something and actually look at what I did, but it's it is very much not a measured planned process. <laughs> no, but there's still there's got to be still an element of discipline. I mean, if you've produced four books in the last Four years or five years. I mean, I know, it, like I say, 2017, Dark Lake came out. But, of course, you were writing before that. So it's not just bang it all out each time. But it still requires that, you know, dogged commitment and the discipline that goes with it to juggle everything for sure. But, yeah, it process varies, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, like there's definitely commitment and there's definitely a determination to get the thing that I've kind of decided I'm going to do done. It just is that it's in an uneven way that it gets delivered. So, yeah, I mean, I think like I like writing and I kind of made a decision probably a few years ago really that I wanted to write now in my life. I want to work and I want to write. And Mm. so if that's what I want, then I am the only person that can make those two things coexist. So I either just do it or I don't do it. But um, if I'm going to do it, then like I just have to kind of then work out how it how it fits together yeah yeah that's amazing (laughs) why not dip your toes into your summer stories from newcastle libraries simply visit the library lounge on the newcastle libraries app or the website newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library yeah i think it's a funny thing i suppose with being a writer you you just, there's a drive, I suppose, that you have to, you just, you're compelled. So you don't have a choice. You, as you say, if you want to work and do the book, you, you're you just going to do it. Yeah, it's not, I'm, I don't, I know people like joke about writing all the time and say it's an illness and all this sort of stuff. And <laughs> I'm not quite at that point, but I definitely, when I'm not writing, it's a bit like, it's, I don't know, it's like a lot of things I think people are passionate about. You know, when I'm not doing it, I really want to be doing it. Um, and I think about it quite a lot and I it's like I can't um, not have an idea going that's in some form of development. Yeah. Um, but then when I, you know, sometimes I do get out my laptop and I'm like, right, I'm going to sit down for however many hours. I can be sort of quite like, oh, now I don't really want to be doing this. So it's a, it's a funny, mm. yeah, it is a bit of a compulsion I think in in a sense and I do really like coming up with ideas. And so I think once I've got an idea it's really hard to completely park it. It sort of bothers me and I keep thinking about it and then I keep thinking of bits of of it that kind of make it even better and then I'm like, I've really got to, you know, get this down at some point because I think it's actually turning into a good idea. So it's more that. It sort of doesn't leave me alone. Oh, darn, I've I've got a good idea. Oh, gee, what a shame. (laughs) But it's sort of like... um, yeah, but then I guess for me it's just working through like, well, what's the re- like a realistic kind of way to, you know, get this down and, um, you know, I don't have deadlines at the moment, which is a nice luxury. Like the deadlines definitely keep you honest because you've kind of, you've got to, you can't you can't leave a book to the last minute. Like it's just, you cannot do that. Um, so you have to kind of create mini kind of deadlines for yourself or you'd never get it done. Yeah. Um, but when you don't have a deadline, it's a bit more like, do I want to, embark on this whole big the, one of the biggest projects I'm ever going to do all over again and that's the decision I guess yeah do you so when you think about I mean say before this book did you have a moment of oh my god am I going to really commit to this this is a big commitment do I really want to do it or does so you do have that <laughs> yeah it's probably for me it's unfortunately more like I go oh my god I've just committed to that what have I done can I actually do this but um 
Yes, like it's definitely, there's definitely moments throughout the process where I kind of think, oh, I can't do this. I actually just don't actually think I can do this. Um, I mean, that was definitely, definitely the case with my first book. Like when I, when I got all of the, the feedback from my editor, the draft itself, I mean, I was just plugging away and being quite happy because, you know, I was just writing this book that I thought maybe, maybe someone might publish one day. But once I started getting structural feedback and people saying, you know, you've, you've got to change things about it, and I would sit there and just think, I understand the feedback, but I just do not understand how I'm going to do it. It just feels like I'm going to be pulling Jenga blocks out and the whole thing's going to fall apart. And I, I don't think I'm equipped to do this. That was definitely like a moment where I was like, okay, you've spent probably God knows how many hundreds of hours on this thing. You could throw them all away or you can spend hundreds of hours more and probably get a book at the end of it. So I had to kind of make that call um, back in 2016. Mm. And then, yeah, there's been other moments where I'm like, can I, can I do this all over again? Because it is so, it's so much in your own head too. So you've got to kind of, it's, it really is you that you're doing the deal with because no one else, even if they're supportive, like they can't write the book for you. So yeah, it's definitely a bit of a moment of truth where you have to kind of go, can I, can I do this? And I guess luckily for me so far, I like the feeling of having written a book so much that it keep, it drags me through the the, the, the dark of times. <laughs> yeah, no, that because I, I was going to ask you as you were talking, I was thinking, well, what does pull you through? So definitely having had written books and knowing that feeling. But when you wrote that first book, what was it that pulled you through when you were thinking, oh, God, how am I going to actually do this? I think with the first one it was a bit different. Like I had always enjoyed writing, always enjoyed ideas. Like I love unpacking TV shows and movies and concepts and probably psychology is almost the the undercurrent of all of those things. Like I just find big questions and characters really interesting. And I'd often sort of said I'd like to write a book. I just felt quite drawn to that notion. My role in advertising isn't creative at all. Like it's all business and strategy and um, client management, but I'm around creative people a lot and I do enjoy the, you know, involvement I have in that space too. And I think I just kind of made a deal with myself. I was like, I dabbled a lot in writing when I was on maternity leave. Like I did little sort of short pieces and some short stories, really enjoyed that. And I, but I think deep down I was like, well, quite clearly you want to write a book, but maybe you just don't want to kind of lay that out as a goal because it sounds a bit, well, presumptuous probably, but also just big. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just kind of made a bit of a deal with myself that I would, write one and I would stop talking about it and stop thinking about it and actually give it a real proper shot. Um, And I did start a a novel that I then put on hold because I kind of got stuck, couldn't make it work, and then started The Dark Lake and just went, right, this is it, no more, like, excuses. And even if this doesn't work, you're going to finish it anyway. And, yeah, I sort of had a bit of a deadline in my head and so that's kind of what I wrote toward. And, yeah, I I was pretty motivated because... I think I just really wanted to do it. I wanted to get it done. I wanted to see if I could if I could make it work. Did a few sort of courses, which I think were really inspiring just because I was around people that had the same goal. And I was like, mm. oh, all these other people have the same goal. Like, I'm not crazy. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so it was a bit of a kind of really focused goal, I think, for that first book. And then, and then it kind of got taken out of my hands a little bit because – the publisher in the States wanted a second book. 
So I kind of had like a split second. They were like, do you want to write a second book? They want to do it as a two book deal. Can you do it? And I was like, yes. And then I was like, oh, I'm not sure, but I will figure it out. And I think that was actually really good because maybe if that hadn't have happened, I, I don't know, maybe I would have sort of stopped and would, maybe it would have been harder to start back up again. But it sort of almost just felt like just keep going now. That one's done. Go. And then, yeah, and then the ideas started, I think, coming more as well. So that's sort of how that it, it sort of they multiplied. Mm. And you were just propelled forward. Yeah, I just, I guess I still really enjoy, I find it difficult, definitely, like really hard sometimes and tedious and the editing process absolutely breaks me. But I just really enjoy the process of ideas coming to life, I think, in a book and characters coming to life in a book. It's so addictive, I think. Mm. And then, yeah, being able to kind of reflect on it and talk about them and having it all be, all that hard work be, realized it's really satisfying like not many other things in life I think have like a package where they actually get done and you know they end and you can hold it and go I did that might not be perfect but you know I did that it's yeah there's something I think about that that's very um rewarding Mm, yeah Oh, look, I would love to just keep talking. I've even got more questions, but I'm realizing we're kind of, we've reached our limit on this podcast time, but that's okay because we've got you coming up to Newcastle in February as part of the um, Newcastle Library Summer Reading Festival. So really looking forward to that. And um, yeah, we'll we'll chew out a few more of these um, great, you know, ideas and, and topics. So yeah, thanks very much, Sarah Bailey, for joining me here today and Listeners, please get yourself a copy of The Housemate because there'll be lots to talk about in February. And until then, enjoy your success. Yeah, thank you. I can't wait for February either. It'll be great to chat to you more. Your fingers crossed, you know, no lockdown. It's It'll be done by then, surely. <laughs> sure. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Your Summer Story series by Newcastle Libraries Real. Turn the page on our next podcast or go back to our original Your Summer Story season with authors like Trent Dalton, Craig Sylvie, Steve Conti, Tia Cooper and more. Thanks to Newcastle Libraries Real. Thanks for listening to Your Summer Stories from Newcastle Libraries. Why not take a dip and a sip, then rate and review us wherever you listen. 